welcome once again to the Lucky Mojo Root Work Hour, brought to you by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and online at luckymojo.com. I'm your announcer, Dr. Jeremy Weiss, calling in from Chaz, Seattle, and in just a moment, we'll be joined by our co-host, Ms. Catherine Ironwood of LuckyMojo.com in Forestville, California, and Conjurman Ali of Conjurman.com in Mission Viejo, California. This week, we will be joined by our special guest, Doc Murphy from the Twin Cities of Minnesota in Paganistan, cultural anthropologist and scholar of modern paganism. On the topic, bringing us today's topic of folk religion. They will take your calls and offer advice to address, ameliorate, and remediate your questions and problems about love, money, career, and spiritual protection using traditional African-American folk magic practices of hoodoo, conjure, or root work as defined and prescribed by the greatest spiritual hoodooists of our time. You can learn a lot just by listening, but if you're selected from among those who have signed up at the Lucky Mojo Forum at forum.luckymojo.com and have called into the show, then you will be on the air and receive a free consultation. We'll be going to the phones in just a moment, but first, we're going to catch up with our co-hosts, Miss Kat and Conjure Man Ali. How are you all doing today? Ah, hi, Dr. Jeremy. You're calling us uh, from the Autonomous Zone? How wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, my house is right next door. It, it's Autonomous Zone adjacent, which is, ah. you know, what, the, what, we, what we say when we're trying to improve our, 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 val- our, our house values, right? Beverly Hills mm-hmm. adjacent. Yeah, we're Autonomous <laughs> yes. Zone adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, how how are things in the autonomous zone? And wait a minute. Before I say that, i got to go back. There will be people listening to this five years from now who have no idea what we're talking <laughs> right. about. Right now, we're in the midst of a whole lot of protests about the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And um, But it, this has led to protests all around the world and all around the country. You can look up this date and read the newspapers from this date and you'll understand. And uh, Seattle, which is where Dr. Jeremy is, has declared a temporary autonomous zone, sometimes called a TASB. But this is the uh, their own autonomous zone, and it's what is it called, Jeremy? Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Chaz, about a six-block area in in Seattle, the Capitol Hill neighborhood, which is my neighborhood. Wow. So what's going on there? Because there's all kind of scare stories coming out from Boo, Fox News, Boo. Boo. What's really happening in the chat? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my parents are calling because they're Fox News watchers and they're hysterical. Um, but uh, the Martians haven't landed, and it seems to be um, a pretty, you know, easily run you know, uh, quiet uh, zone. It's a, a little bit messy uh, right now because uh, there has been spray painting or decorating, depending on how you view it. Um, mm. uh, it has kind of a party atmosphere, and uh, there doesn't seem to be very many 
problems. Apparently, there are lectures and workshops going on about, um, uh, you know, everything from decriminalizing psychedelics to, of course, uh, police reform and whether or not we really even need to have a police department as first responders. So lots of interesting uh, discussions and workshops among people there. Yeah. Love wow. It. Yeah. Well, the reason I mentioned Fox News, for those not aware of this or who believe Fox News, Fox News conflated a bunch of photographs of different violent protests, including part of Minneapolis on fire, and said, oh, this is all happening in Seattle, which, folks, it is not. And they had to take it down and they had to, well, they didn't apologize. They should have, but they just said, oh, confusion. We're so sorry. We've just sent out a million copies of that all over social media. We should, we should point out that they're, uh, explain, the excuse of, of confusion is bullshit because they photoshopped the exact same guy with a gun into four different photos. It's oh, my gosh. Side by side, it's the exact same guy wearing green, and he's got a rifle in his hand, and they photoshopped him into multiple photos of Chaz going, look, it's this guy. He wasn't even anywhere near Chaz. So it's it's very deliberate. Yeah, it's very deliberate, Mm. very ugly, very stupid. Well, I'm glad things are going, are going well in Chaz land. And, um, and it, you know, it's, it's nice to know that um, decoration is going on in an orderly fashion. I'm sure they're going to suffer from lack of garbage pickup at some point. As it Mm -hmm. turns out, we need garbage pickup more than we need police. Um, this is why in the Bible, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it explains how far to put the latrine away from the camp. I mean, truly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the latrine is the most important part of any temporary autonomous zone. And um, so that's just a word to the wise. Um, and when it becomes too stinky, people give up. But they have to learn how to uh, transport their trash and um, feces away if that is shut off. Just a word from someone who's been there, done that. This is really good news, though. I love to hear about it, and I'm very happy, Jeremy, that that's going on. Well, out here in Forestville, in our little temporary autonomous zone, which has you know, been a temporary autonomous zone here on these two acres for a number of years, um, we have a septic system. <laughs> so, you know, I know about getting rid of the junk and the trash and the feces because we're not hooked up to any sewage or garbage collection. Um, We have to do our own, you know, we have a recycling company that comes by. But things that cannot be recycled, we have to take away ourselves. Anyway, things here are beautiful. It's sunny. It's lovely. The shop people are hard at work. Um, Jenna, Heidi, and uh, Summer are there today. And um, we have hired someone new. All these pleas for please somebody new, please someone new come to the shop. We're suffering. We have hired a, a young man named Luther, and Luther is the son of our hardware and software um, contractor Tim. And um, Luther is 18, and he's on his way from high school to life. And um, this is his summer um, pause to collect money. (laughs) So he's working for us, and we've got him labeling candles, and he'll be labeling books and doing those kinds of things just to get us caught up. And um, if all goes according to plan, on the 1st of July, he will be 
um, joined by his friend Dimitri, who was also collecting coins to um, to spring them to their new life in Oneonta, New York, in October. So temporary workers, um, two young men, were very, very happy to have the first, and I'm sure we'll enjoy the second as well. So things are looking up at Lucky Mojo. We actually have somebody um, labeling candles. Boy, that's good news. And um, everything else is pretty well. I spent the morning bagging double shoestrings, uh, mixing stock oils. I I currently smell like a combination of um, money drawing and Cleo May with just a little hint of cast off evil. It's kind of a weird combination, but the money drawing is the strongest because that was the one I made last, so it would be the strongest. And um, we've been working very hard on some projects with Deacon Millen. They'll be announced later. But um, one thing I would like to say is that I have rearranged the Lucky Mojo Forum. If you go to the forum and um, take a look, the top section now has um, some links to AIR, the Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers, free spells. And it also has links to Hoodoo Psychic's free spell lists. You contributed to one of those, Ollie. You know what I'm talking about, those little listicles. I do, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so, uh, yeah, we're doing a little bit of, I guess you could call it cooperative advertising with Hoodoo Psychics, between Hoodoo Psychics and Lucky Mojo. So, And then, of course, Advertising Air is just a freebie because that's part of a nonprofit, the Association of Independent Spiritual Churches. But um, Deacon Millett and I, longtime friends, have kind of come up with a little trade. So that's nice. And if you all are um, users of the forum, take a look at that top section. It has been rearranged and expanded. And, um, oh, also the sign-up for the radio shows has been brought to the top, but not all of the archives, just an explanation of how to sign up for the radio show is now at the top section of the Lucky Mojo Forum. So I think it's an improvement, a little bit of fussing around. That's um, kind of all I've been up to. Uh, Reading candles for the church, I guess, is another one of my jobs. Um, And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Ollie. How are things in your world? Uh, things are are going well. Um, protests are still kind of going on uh, around the world uh, and and in the United States. Uh, and SoCal has definitely been participating in them. Um, but so we're, we're we're trying to be socially aware and, and politically active, while also trying to be safe. So this is really weird time to sort of be alive because you've got this kind of conflation of multiple things going on. You have, you know, racial injustice and the murder of George Floyd in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a economic collapse, you know, like multiple things are happening um, at once. And so it is a bit of a strange time to be going around. And so as a historian, I try to note it as much as possible for future historians uh, and just kind of reflect on that. Um, but I've tried not to let it take away from, from my daily practice, which is going quite well. Um, but the theme of justice is being reflected both in the, what's going on in the protest, but also in the root work that I'm doing. Um, I think there's really been kind of an awakening. And a lot of the clients that I've been working with now have been clients that are really asking about justice work, um, whether mm-hmm. it was justice for that time the police officer mistreated them or their boss mistreated them. So I'm getting a lot of kind of like corporate work. Like I was let go and I'm pretty sure my boss is a racist. 
So yeah. doing lots of work in, in that regard, and I think that just kind of reflects what's going on around us more broadly, and then it's, it's, it's kind of filtering down into people's ordinary daily lives. So there's been a very interesting awakening, and it's, it's really being shown in the client work and readings that, that, we're, that I'm, we're doing over here. You know, this is true, too. I've been having clients who um, have in the past um, asked me, is there someone at the at the um, job who's gossiping about me? And mm-hmm. now they're calling and they're saying, is there actually racial discrimination? Is this is what's happening? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, And sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But that question is now coming up more than, you know, yeah. um, you know, does that does that um, bitch in the head office hate me? It's more like, is this systemic? And I think people mm-hmm. are waking up to the fact that yep. they thought they couldn't, they, they thought it was over, racism was over, they were wrong. Mm-hmm. And also um, people saying about the, you know, they've hit the glass ceiling. African-American yes. women in executive positions, I hit the glass ceiling. Yes. And, yes. Um, and, and what am I going to do now? And wanting to um, either fight their way through it or in some cases asking me for help on how to go sideways and just take all their skills and talents away from the corporation, and these are usually large corporations that they're working for, and if not start their own work, find a way to take all those skills and talents to a nonprofit that will pay them a living wage that will Uh allow them to rise up farther because as nonprofits, they are not um, bound by these corporate good old boy networks. So it's been very interesting working with clients on a lot of job stuff. You're right, a lot of job stuff. When you said uh, glass ceiling, it actually reminded me of uh, a client that I work with Two weeks ago now? Yeah, two weeks ago mm-hmm. is when the work ended. And she was a, a black woman in a corporate office who felt that at every meeting she went to, she would suggest something and everyone would nod politely. And then a guy would suggest the exact same thing. And everyone would go, oh, yeah, we should do that. She felt mm-hmm. like her voice literally mm-hmm. wasn't being heard. Like there was this kind of effect where people noted her, but she was invisible. Her voice was not was like silence this other guy would say the exact same thing maybe throw in a couple buzzwords and it was oh he's a genius so we did some work about empowering her and really bringing everyone under her control a little bit of dominance mm-hmm. work female empowerment work but it was exactly exactly what you were talking about she felt like mm-hmm. there was a glass ceiling and she could go no further um and so we're really we're really living in a moment we really are a movement day. yeah i think people are are much more likely at this point to talk about it. It's it's much yeah. more on their minds, and I, I think that's yeah. good. I also want to say before we leave the news, um, there's another thing that um, has been very troubling among all of the, you know, the um, uh, George Floyd protests, and then there's been more people killed. There have been yeah. a couple of um, deaths in the high desert of California, one in Palmdale oh, yes. and one in Victorville. And these yeah. are two men who were found hanging from trees in yeah. front of public buildings, the city hall in one case, the public yeah. library in the other case, and both were ruled suicides. They uh, happened 50 miles apart, 10 days apart. Um, very unlikely coincidence. One man was yeah. hanged by a USB cord, of all things. Mm-hmm. Um Rather an odd choice. Um, And these were deemed suicides. The families are not giving up here. The families are saying, were these even um, 
uh, you know, encircle this crime scenes. Was anything done? Nobody knows. And so um, this led um, one of my um, friends on Facebook to post that it reminded him of a series of, quote, suicides, unquote, of gay men in um, back in the... um, 80s and um, up to the, I think up to 90 or so, in which gay men mm-hmm. were found dead at the foot of the cliffs in Sydney, Australia, and every one of them was ruled a suicide, as if gay men just you know jumped off cliffs constantly. Yes. 88 men, and it took 88 men before somebody's brother said, "Wait a minute," <laughs> and of course they many of them have been found to have been. Uh, murders, but they now they have they never had crime scenes, so mm. it's very important to stress. Let's not let this go to eighty-eight hangings and go. Oh God, yes. it's a coincidence. Um, those those people who um, were uh, killed in um, Australia were killed by sort of roving gangs of teens who wanted to kill gay men, and they knew mm-hmm. that if someone fell off the cliff. And uh, were you know was found crushed at the bottom, that it would be it would be called a suicide because the police didn't want to think about you know gay men being murdered that wasn't on their agenda. And I think mm-hmm. now the police have to be kind of told in these little towns, Victorville and Palmdale, yes, black men hanging from trees in public spaces is yep. unusual enough typical suicide. And um, agreed. Uh, <laughs> You know, we'll see where it goes. It's very sad, very frightening, and um, very alarming. Um, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. prayers and and um, and let's get some justice work for that um, mm-hmm. to be uh, broke open. That case to be broken open. Well said. Yeah. All right. They're blaming it on COVID nineteen depression. Yeah, I mean, COVID-19 <laughs> depression exists, but, like, you look at that and you just, you go, nah, not in mm-hmm. public spaces like that. We've seen this before. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not. You can't pull the wool over our eyes here. Come on. All right. All right. I, I, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Well, every time this comes up, I keep on thinking of that Bob Dylan song, Desolation Row. They're selling yeah. postcards of the hanging. And it contains the the riot squad. They're restless. They need somewhere to go. Mm. True. So, um, well, that's our little political talk. I hope you don't mind me and Ali. We have that in common, and we talk about it mm-hmm. pretty much all the time. These days. we'd <laughs> like to have such a nice political scene that we didn't have to waste any time talking about it. But Ali and I only talk once a week, and this is part of our yep. friendship. So you get to sit up in on what a couple of radical left-wing outsider <laughs> history types. Mm. <laughs> so to, we're going to bring in our guest, and our guest is someone new, but not new to the chat. This is um, someone who's known very, very well in the chat, and this is Doc Murphy. So um, Doc Murphy from Paganistan. Tell us how things are where you are. Oh, for for those who are not aware, Paganistan is the pagan community's nickname here for the Twin Cities. Um, I'm in St. Paul, very close to Minneapolis, and, well, if you've been paying attention to the news uh, recently, you kind of know what's been going on here. Um, Most recently, um, upon a a curfew being lifted, things have calmed down considerably um, with regard to issues around protesting George Floyd's murder. 
the big issue that they're kind of looking at right now is the, the conflicts between the police department and the police union. Um, the police department uh, is headed by a, um, a, a fairly new chief, African-American man, who earlier in his career sued the Minneapolis Police Department for discrimination and won, and now he's the chief. The problem that people are recognizing is that the police union, which is run by an unapologetic Trump supporter and racist fellow, um, in his elected position, um, their position has always been to preserve the police's uh, jobs at all costs. And the most recent news is that the police department has rescinded negotiations with the police union. They've just said, we're done talking to you. And wow. Tried, yeah, and the union tried to say, you can't do that, and the chief said, watch me. Um, lots of calls from the city council about disbanding, um, defunding, somehow, somehow reconnoitering the police department in Minneapolis. There's a lot of discussion going on about that right now. Um, cooler heads are prevailing, but um, like I said, uh, Lake Street, which is the, the, the um, area of Minneapolis that took the most violence, is still cleaning up, and there's some businesses that just burned to the ground. And it's, it's, the community is really rallying around. It's been amazing, but... It's also been really sad to see see your city burn, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You guys are really at the epicenter of this thing, and it's um, it focuses, you know, sad, bad attention on the Twin Cities. That's for sure. But you know, as as these protests have spread, we know it's going on everywhere. It's everywhere, and um, so. Um, have you been to any of the demonstrations or protests? Um, I haven't, not because I'm, the spirit isn't there, but because my, I, I've got some knee troubles and, and some other things that keep me from marching. I did my kind of marching and activist work in grad school when I was in Milwaukee. Um, this time, because of the teaching that I've done at the various schools I've done on power and justice and social change, I'm kind of being tapped to be sort of a, a, a resource that way with regard to things to read things to expose people to, and and um, looks like in the community probably some workshops and talk. There's a lot of that phrase going around of uh, white people need to start talking to each other, and some of the white people here have been talking in classrooms about it for a long time and really are ready to kind of sit with folks who have never talked about this before, um, about racism, about systemic inequality, and the murder of George Floyd, and the problems with the police department, and um, like I said, that's kind of where my focus has been, has been more um, researching resources and, and being helped that way. Well, there's place for all of us. I haven't been to any of the protests either. They're very, very far away, and I would have to drive there. And I don't feel comfortable at this point with um, COVID-19 getting into a mass group. So I've been mm -hmm. using social media to post on, and I think that's a... Uh, something good and trying to have conversations with assholes up to the point when I just block them. <laughs> you know, you can try, you can try. And you know, the uh, the reason I said boo to Fox News earlier, most of these people are are cutting and pasting Fox News articles or the Washington Times, which is ultra ultra moony um, cult right-wing thing, which they then mislabel Washington Post as if they don't know the difference, which they probably don't know. And um, so it's, you know, it's, you know, I'm doing my little part for education before I just, you know, burn the friendship to the ground and walk on. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can do. 
Um, but, yeah. um, you know, I still have 5,000 friends on Facebook. There's always more good people out there, and you can always find them if you look for them. All right. Well, Doc Murphy, um, right now we're going to come to our topic. And our topic this week, which you brought to us, is folk religion. Mm-hmm. And I know that you know a whole lot more about this than I do. And um, and I know that Conjurman Ali knows some too, but I'm just going to start with my definition of folk religion. Um, this is a, a definition I you know, got a long time ago. Folk religion is domestic religion as opposed to institutionalized religion. So institutionalized religion has a hierarchy, perhaps a priestcraft. Um, it has buildings usually, you know, churches, temples, synagogues, um, big buildings. Institutionalized religion usually has a system of collecting offerings. It distinguishes between a clergy and a laity. It organizes mass celebrations um, and at which the um, hierarchs preside. Domestic religion usually takes place um, in homes. It is often woman-led especially in religions where women are not allowed to have a clerical position. And domestic religion can be an adjunct to um, the institutionalized religion, whereby, for instance, women will sew little seed pearls all over a little gown and give it to the infant of Prague. The infant of Prague is a, um, a statue of the Holy infant Jesus in Prague, Czechoslovakia, but women um, sew these beautiful dresses and give it, give them to the infant. And that is a domestic way of being part of religion without being part of the institutional nunnery uh, organization set aside for women in the Catholic Church. And there are other instances where domestic religion overlaps with clerical or institutionalized religion, but it is particularly Um, interesting to find domestic religion springing up in areas wherein imposed religion, and I'm going to use Catholicism in this example, has been imposed by colonial forces on top of an indigenous population, and they have no hold their um, indigenous religion meetings anymore. So they may come up with ideas of brotherhoods and sisterhoods, and um, they don't call these things um, temples or churches anymore because that's been forbidden, but they have clubs or they might have a lodge order. And they then um, participate in their domestic religion, which sometimes they will hook onto and add onto a Catholic um, religious festival. For instance, in the town of Calatafimi, which is where my um, Sicilian um, grandmother came from, they were Moors. They were Moors from North Africa who had been hired to be mercenaries. They ended up in this little town, Calatafimi. They killed the guy who was hiring them. They took over his castle. And um, however, they and although they are Catholic, they are Um, having some very strange little um, ceremonies in which they make loaves of bread shaped like the sun with little points and rays. They have donkey carts or horse carts, which they parade through the street. They throw the bread at the people. Everybody grabs for bread for luck. And they carry a, a golden ass, by which I mean a donkey. A statue of a golden donkey is carried in front of the procession. Now, don't tell me that's Catholic, because it's not. <laughs> it's, it's something else. 
but they receive the blessings of the Catholic Church, and this comes from a church which is called the Church of the Most Holy Cross, and the Jesus on that cross is black. It's it's just what it is. It's black Jesus, and they have these these carts and this donkey, and they do this every three years. Why every three years? Because they've always been doing it every three years. And tourists would like it once a year, but no, they're going to only do it every three years. And, um, and I love it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love it. So that so that would be a folk religion, but it's been grafted onto the Catholic religion. And with that little story from my grandmother's <laughs> family, I turn this over to you, Doc Murphy. Yeah, that is a absolutely a splendid example of how uh, folk religious patterning works. And um, kind of the the thing folks need to remember is that the the lines between folk practice and the institutional practice they can be really messy and blurry. So even though they're kind of t- spoken about as, as different phenomenon and one springing from the other, it's a little bit more nuanced and complicated than that if you look at case by case. Um, I'm just going to start with just some really kind of basic kind of nuts and bolts um, uh, definitions here. And then, again, I've got some examples as well of how this works. A lot of times folk religion is a way for a culture that's um, had a institutionalized religion imposed upon them. It's a way for them to kind of, you know, it, engage in cultural resistance. So it's a form of cultural survival by taking what's imposed on them and reworking it in order to express who that culture actually is. So kind of a standard definition is that folk religions are forms of religion and they're expressions that are distinct from the official doctrines and practices of organized and institutional religions. I mean, we can definitely see that there are differences in practice um, uh, with folk religion as opposed to the ones that are kind of given to you by the institution. But it's also doctrines that are different. There are times where in folk religious practice that you might hear that, okay, the, you know, the Pope or whoever said, this is what our stance is on this. And they go, yeah, that may be what the Pope says, but I don't care. We're, this is how we do it here. And they pick and choose whether or not the doctrine applies to them. Um, kind of the two big patterns that you see in folk religion are you, see, you definitely see it in ethnic and regional customs. You definitely had a great example there um, where kind of the folk culture is expressed in religious life, you know, um, the various Catholicisms of, of place, you know. They're Catholic in Italy, they're Catholic in Ireland, they're Catholic in Mexico, they're Catholic in Poland. They have those kind of basic kind of doctrinal or, or uh, uh, ritual similarities that bind them together as Catholics, you know, Mass on Sunday, Rosary is practice, the Pope, uh, the corporal works of mercy or the seven sacraments, whatever. But in each of those places, the Catholicism looks and feels and sounds and tastes very different. You know, you're not going to see Santa Muerta in Ireland. You're not going to see the Lady of Shestachova in Italy. Um, and a lot of times, even though they're Catholic and go to Mass together, they will look at each other's cultural expressions and go, who are these saints and other people that are, I've never heard of, I've never heard of the Lady of Knock. Um, so, you know, the, the various regional differences is definitely where you see folk religion expressed. Also, folk religion comes in the form of syncretisms. And so we we're kind of discussing that as well, where cultures are blending and expressed in religion, and this can happen. The, the big example of, uh, of this are sort of the Afri- African diaspora traditions, uh, mm-hmm. the ones that are from Ifa, you know, uh, Candomblé, uh, Lupumi. Vudun, Santeria, these are definite um, expressions of cultural survival in the face of having Catholicism imposed. 
kind of taking it and taking these images, taking the practices, and using them as a shield, a disguise for maintaining African traditions. And uh, they've kind of grown into their own phenomenon, their own religious practice as well. I remember one of my advisors, who's a voodoo hudong, was speaking with colleagues of his who were trying to make the argument to their babalaos that, well, look, we, we don't have to hide our religion anymore. We can take all this Catholic stuff out. And they went, no, no, you can't take this out too. This is also part of who we are. So in those senses, in the sense, that sense, those sort of um, cultural phenomena that's, that have to be blended out of necessity over time and through tradition actually do become the new tradition as well. So that's when a successful syncretism happens too. Um, and kind of how this is applicable with regard to the practice of magic. Um, there were early academics like Emil Durkheim that used to make distinctions between religion and magic, where magic was sort of primitive or unformed religious expression, and it became a real religion when it organized and the magic was left to the clergy or to the experts. You know, this distinction kind of has been dumped. Um, magic is a practice. Uh, you know, I, it's what I like to call spiritual technology. It's a way of doing religion. You know, there's uh, in that sort of that pile of um, prayer and pilgrimage and there's magic and feasting and song. There's all sorts of ways to do religion. The fancy word for this is praxis. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the, 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 that old-fashioned distinction between religion and magic, one being unformed and one being grown up, has been dumped. Um, there's been some critique of the word folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in folk religion is somehow derogatory, and there's been a critique of that critique saying, what the heck is derogatory about being folks? You know, <laughs> So that's a little bit of academic bickering. But um, it's kind of important to understand that there is a, a subversiveness to folk religion that I think um, people really relate to. I mean, this, you want your religion to express who you are and where you are, as well as, you know, give you that guiding place in life. So. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you said a couple things here that are really interesting. One of which just was at the end of what you said, the use of the word folk as being seen as derogatory. Um, You know, this is a good thing that people are holding on to that word. Many words have um, assumed a a bad, lesser, or derogatory meaning, and people have to reclaim them. I'm glad to know that folk was never thrown completely on the junk pile and that people are resisting Mm -hmm. that because, um, yeah, it got a little tainted by the Volkisha movement, but, you know, okay, that's gone, it's over. Um, It's a real word, and it means the people, and it's not an arch, um, you know, word, you know, that, that has a different meaning. It really means what it means. And, um, Folk religion is a very inclusive term, and there is no other word that you could use. You know, syncretic, indigenous, eclectic, regional, what are you going to call it? You know, non-clerical religion. No, just call it folk religion. (laughs) What do you think? What do you think about this, Ali? Well, historians of religion uh, sometimes use the word popular religion uh, as an expression of folk religion. It doesn't quite carry the same connotation, but it is one of the terms that they've used. Both are used kind of interchangeably uh, among historians of religion. But the, for those of us that study change over time, which is what historians do, what's fascinating about folk religion is that it really shows us the way in which religions were localized 
And this is, is something that people don't often think about. When you think of religion, you think of a set of doctrines and dogmas, and there's sort of a, a, an imagined, pristine way of doing it. Catholicism looks a certain way. Judaism looks a certain way. Islam looks a certain way. Hinduism looks a certain way. But that's often imagined. The real practice of religion, as done by ordinary people around the world, more often not falls in line with folk religion. There are family traditions that are passed down that may have nothing to do with the actual core tenets of belief. There may be local expressions. There may be uh, preservations of older indigenous traditions. And so the reality is that folk religion is the sort of dominant practice around the world. Um, but no, no one actually admits it. Most people who practice, for example, a form of folk Catholicism, you say, oh, this is folk Catholicism. It's not uh, orthodox. They kind of will look at you like, what are you talking about? Because it's, it's mm -hmm. their lived experience. It's the way that they've been taught their children, the way they're teaching their children, and, you know, and so on and so forth. And it is also the site in which we find some of the most beautiful and, and kind of uh, amazing spiritual practices. All religions have magic, as Dr. Murphy rightly pointed out. They may not often call it magic, but there is some form of notion that you can change the world around you, either through prayer or ritual or whatnot, uh, that you can even divine the future. People often talk about how fortune-telling is, is bad, but they forget the biblical forms of divination. And then we're not just talking about bibliomancy. We're talking about like what the Bible itself records, the, the priestly uh, ulum and thurum, right? The practices of the stones mm -hmm. or the or the divination that involves finding out if someone is an adulterer with the dirt, right? Like there's whole, like, whole traditions of magic that exist within religion. But folk religion or popular religion allows a great deal more flexibility. And they're a little bit more comfortable adopting the technologies of the so-called magical world. So one example of this is uh, in North Africa. So in North Africa, what we find is that as Islam spread into the region, uh, indigenous and local traditions just kind of got absorbed. And so the is expression of Islam in Morocco involves, we often refer to as sort of Sufi-inclined Islam, involves all sorts mm -hmm. of traditions that may have nothing to do with the sort of Quranic interpretation or Sharia interpretation of Islam found in orthodoxy. Music, the use of music in exorcism rites. This is a very mm -hmm. common practice in Morocco in which you believe that your house can be haunted by a jinn. And how do you remove the jinn? Well, you perform a series of sacrifices and music rites with drums and flutes, and you play into the wee hours in order to drive out the jinn from the house. Here we have a sort of an interesting kind of, this is a perfect example of folk religion. The jinn are mentioned in the Quran, so you have a very clear a connection to orthodox Islam but the practice of driving out the jinn with music and sacrifice that is a uniquely Moroccan expression of it. It's mm -hmm. folk religion mm -hmm. it's a bit magical it's a bit related to orthodoxy but it's its own unique expression mm -hmm. um, That's, well, a, that's yeah. really good I'm going to throw one in here from Judaism which is of course very popular and pretty well known the idea of the evil eye. The evil eye is mentioned mm -hmm. in the Bible. Um, in fact, I think King Solomon in the book of Proverbs says, don't let anyone with an evil eye eat at your table, which is, you know, good advice, meaning a jealous <laughs> eye, sometimes, right? someone who's jealous of you. Um, and, and yet um, there are no places in the Jewish Bible or 
in you know in what would be called the Old Testament of Christianity, telling you how to deal with the evil eye. And mm-hmm. so there's a whole series of these ways to get rid of it, the evil eye, that are used by folk Jewish practitioners, um, and they vary by region. Um, but for instance, I'm uh, partially Sephardic and partially Ashkenazi. Well, my Ashkenazi family, we say kain ein hara. Hara is a Hebrew word. It means forbidden or not clean or ungood. And um, kain ein means no eye. So it's no eye that is forbidden. That's what you say. It's half German and half Hebrew. Kain ein hara. And then um, you spit and you um, spit on your finger and you rub with your spit on the object that has been given the evil eye. And so every Ashkenazi Jew would know that if it was a Russian Jew, they would actually spit, spit, actual spit. They wouldn't just lick their fingers so politely. They would, they would go pe 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 to make spit come out of their mouth. And um, so these things are considered to be approved by rabbis, right? Um, and and um, approved by rabbis because, well, if, it wouldn't be approved if, if it wasn't in the Bible, it's in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Therefore, it must be approved. And so it's like this Moroccan drumming. It has grown up as a folk tradition. And then in other regions that have evil eye belief, there are other traditions. Um, but, you know, it's it, <laughs> yes, Nagashiva knew what I was saying. It's in the Bible, Mr. Phillips. Um, that's what uh, Jerry Lee Lewis said to Sam Phillips at Sun Records when he was asked to record Goodness Gracious Great Balls of Fire and he said he couldn't do it was sacrilegious it's in the Bible Mr. Phillips and he was struggling with his own folk religion in a way well let's get back to let's get back to um, you Doc Murphy Um, tell us a little more give us some examples of folk religion around the world I have some Oh gosh, I'm loaded with examples, but I kind of I, I wanted to kind of circle back and and um, a lot of folks kind of make the argument of like, gee, these really interesting folk traditions are kind of emerging from the specter of you know having institutional religions on top. It's the other way around. Folk religion is how human beings have been expressing themselves religiously since we were putting cave paintings on the walls. The bigger it's, it's, so the question needs to be flipped around: what causes religions to organize? You have to think in terms of, you know, um, political and social control and, and other ways to kind of uh, keep a society in line. But that's really not the, the, the way human beings operate. So there is always going to be this tension, say, between um, the folk traditions, the folk religions, and institutional. I have a little tidbit um, uh, from a, uh, American Academy of Religion conference I was at maybe about 10 years ago. There was a Pew Research survey where they asked folks about um, their religious practices and religious knowledge. It was a pretty big sample. It was about 1,300 people. And they asked the sample, and 75% of those interviewed said that everything you need to know about living a good and right life can be found in the Bible. 85% of that 75% said they had never read it. Hmm. Now, the theologians at the meeting sound this kind of worrisome. They were kind of going, well, isn't this, I mean, what's, what's happening? Why are they not consulting? Those of us in the social sciences are like, have you not been paying attention? People have been kind of, you know, figuring out how to interpret, you know, Christian religions of various sorts, biblical religions on their own since, since its inception. So you have to take a look at what's happening on the ground Sometimes it, when, when uh, people get a little bit too focused on official doctrines and they're not paying attention to the practices that the people doing it are actually doing, there can be some confusion. Um, there's a subversiveness to it, too, as well. But 
Um, some really great examples that I've bumped into in my travels and in my research. Um, I got to go to Ireland in 2000, and boy, that's a place to go if you want to see folk religion at work. Um, I was traveling there mm-hmm. as part of a uh, class over a spring break trip with one of my colleagues in the ethnic studies department who was originally a Dubliner. And the week that we were there was spring break week, and it was over the course of the spring equinox. And on the day of the spring equinox, as we were traveling through the bus, we noticed a lot of uh, smoke kind of drifting into the sky. And we were kind of wondering, well, what's, what's, what's happening here? And he said, oh, it's spring equinox. Everyone is coming out to their yards and burning off the, the dried tips of their gorse bushes, of their furze bushes out in front. And that's wow. where you're seeing all the smoke is that everyone steps out and burns off the tips of the bushes on the first day of spring. And what he said was, it's what you do around here. He says, they don't remember why, but that's what you do. And I, like, literally, like, wanted to run out of the bus and go talk to people. Like, this is anthropology gold. I mean, this is, this is the rich, rich stuff. Um, mm-hmm. He also mentioned that if you ask the typical Irish person who lives in Ireland how many saints there are in Ireland, you get a pretty surprising answer. There's really only about three canonized saints having to do with Ireland, you know, Patrick and Columkilla and Aidan. But if you ask Irish folks, they'll tell you, oh, there's 3,000 to 5,000 saints in Ireland. There's a saint to that room. Wow. There's a saint. Oh, there's a saint. And I was like, yeah, that was my response too. Wow. And my colleague John turned to me and said, yes, the Irish don't need the Pope to tell us who a saint is. And wow. that's really, you know, that's really kind of the uh, how folk religion works. There is a subversiveness. We don't really care what the Vatican says. We know what's true for us here because we've been here. Um, mm-hmm. Another great example, um, I was interviewing um, my friend Ilga, uh, who is, again, in the Ethnic Studies Department. She herself was uh, uh, originally from Latvia and was fluent in many languages but a native Latvian speaker. And I was interviewing her for a linguistics assignment in in uh, my program and for a class, and, and was just kind of getting from her Latvian kinship terms, you know, father, mother, brothers, brothers, sisters, brother, that sort of thing. And when I asked her, well, what's the Latvian word for mother? And she paused for a minute, and I said, well, you're pausing there. Is there something? And she went, well, he, in Latvia, we have many mothers. And not only did she talk about your mother, but then she talked about Latvian folk religion and how every force of nature has mm. its mother spirit and its mother goddess that you pray to. She said they live in the trees, they live in the caves, and we have many mothers. But particularly interesting was that she said in Latvian there are two words for God. One of them is dievs, which refers to the God that you encounter when you go to church, sort of the institutional God. And they have mm-hmm. dievinch which has a little kind of affectionate suffix on the end. And Tevinch means the God who walks among you. He says there's this notion in Latvian folk religion that you should always be kind to strangers and you should always be kind to everyone that you meet because that stranger, you could be looking in the eyes of God. They wa- God walks among you. And that is a folk expression of God rather than the institutional ones. And I said, that's remarkable. And she said, well, this is the thing. You know, we were converted late, and we didn't convert completely. She said in a lot of parts of Latvia, if someone is really, really ill, or let's say they're having trouble delivering a baby, there will be some members of the family that will run to the church and pray, and there will be other members of the family that will grab a chicken and go into the woods and sacrifice it because they are not taking any chances. They're going to pray to everybody. Um, right. So, yeah, that's, it was really pretty remarkable. So, And that's the thing about folk religion is that it's unapologetically syncretic, um, and it is unapologetically about 
place, there is almost a sense of, um, no, we've been here. We know what works. You know? Um, my very favorite example is actually a visual example. There's a book out by an art historian named Paul Cudinaras. It's called The Empire of Death, A Cultural History of Ossuaries and Charnel Houses. And this is a, a photo essay. It's a beautiful book about all these cathedrals and, and ossuaries and charnel houses all over Europe and South America, where essentially they're, they're bone repositories for the faithful um, mm-hmm. throughout history. They're remarkable. Sometimes they even have cases where um, after people have died, they donate their bones uh, to actually be worked into the architecture of the, the cemeteries and the churches and the, and the, mm-hmm. and the chapels and the memorials. Um, there is one of these catacombs, one of these ossuaries in Peru, where along with all the places uh, where you, you know, do your praying and, and honor who's being uh, uh, memorialized, um, they laid four skulls on a window sill. And hmm. yeah, and, and initially the, what's, the, the purpose of them is, is essentially the, the, the display of these bones is to remind the faithful that, you know, life is temporary, you should be good in this life because you have the afterlife to think about. And, and the bones were donated basically by, by um, monks and nuns in, in earlier historical times to make sure that their bodies could keep serving God after the soul has gone to heaven. So that was the meaning, but what they were finding was that people were coming in and not only leaving offerings, this is beautiful photograph, this close-up photograph of these four skulls, and people were still leaving coins and candy and, and um, wine and booze and cigarettes for these four skulls, um, hmm. in much the same way that you do in uh, Day of the Dead context and in other contexts where you lay uh, treats and offerings out to the spirits of the dead. Now, the, the bishop was saying, could you please stop doing that? Please stop. It's weird. It's, it makes a mess. I mean, that's, this isn't what you should be doing. And they don't stop doing it because that's mm-hmm. essentially saying, you know, hey, thank you for the church and all that, but we've been here for thousands of years, and we know what works. So kind of step off. We got this. And they mm-hmm. continue, even though the institution says that's not what you should be doing anymore, they continue to say, we're going to keep doing it because you're, you as an institutionalized religion are forgetting something, and what you're forgetting about is us and our culture. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of examples there that, like I said, I could go on for 100 years, but I will pause. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's throw this back at Ollie. Give us another one from your um, store of examples, Ollie. Yeah, so there's, you know, folk religions have, uh, you know, points of cultural exchange between them in which religious groups find that, oh, that's really interesting. Those people over there are doing something that we find fascinating. Let's participate in that. So in West Africa, for example, in the Orisha and Eshu cults, there is a sort of subgroup of people known as the Alufa. Alufa also happens to be my Kimbanda name, so Tata Alufa is what I'm known as. And the Alufa cults are interesting. They're Orisha and Eshu cults, but they've absorbed the jinn from their Muslim neighbors, and they've reimagined them as fire giants. So now you have this sort of scheme. You have the Orisha as sort of elemental spirits, as, as the gods of nature. You have Eshu as the crossroads entities, and then you have these fire giants, the jinn. We also find that it's not just the sort of uh, scheme that's drawn in or the spirits that are drawn in, but also the actual technology. So amongst the Alufa, there are uh, written talismans in Arabic. These are non-Muslims. They don't 
practice Islam, they're not interested in the Quran, but they take certain Quranic phrases like Bismillah or various uh, alphabetic charms uh, from the Tilsam or Tawiz tradition within folk Islam, and they've absorbed it into their own practices. And so you will now find these sort of charms that are very similar, interestingly enough, to mojo bags in which you'll have certain herbs and bones, but a little small piece of paper with a little Arabic script on it written by a person who's not uh, an Arabic speaker or uh, have any background in Islam. So there's this sort of fascinating exchange that's happening where it goes, oh, well, that seems powerful. We're going to borrow that, and we're going to include it into what we're already doing. Is this the is this similar to the one that's included in my book Paper in My Shoe? Yes, very that similar. One, to it, yeah. That one from Ghana that I asked you to mm-hmm. help translate? Yep. Yeah. Yep, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you want to the see Ghanan, an example Oh, go ahead. The Ghana one is an example of of a much more advanced sort of Islamic tawiz or talisman, but you would find the same thing now being written by non-Muslims. I see. I see. Okay. Um, all righty. Well, I'm going to I'm going to throw another one in that's um, you know has always um, been lovely to me to see, and this is the um, veneration of Mashaman in Guatemala. So um, Mashaman is um, has achieved kind of worldwide cult popularity and has been unfortunately conflated with. Um, Jesus Malverde, which just because they both sit in chairs, but Jesus Malverde sat in a chair because I don't know why. He didn't originally sit in a chair. Originally was was just a figure of a portrait bust, but now he sits in a chair just like Mashaman, and people have confused the two. So Mashaman was a um, an, an indigenous deity, the old father god. Um, he was associated with fertility, um, with rain the beginning of the rainy season, with rain as semen or semen as rain, and um, and with the beginning of the flowering of plants. And so he was sometimes shown crucified on a sort of a flowery cross. Of course, when the Catholics showed up, they go, well, he can't be crucified on a flowery cross. That's not allowed. We have to have only Jesus on those crosses. And they said, no, 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 We really, this guy really is crucified on a cross. So they decided they'd call him Judas Iscariot. And so for a while, he was known as um, St. Jude in Guatemala. But then people said, no, no, Jude is bad. I mean, they meant Judas, uh, not not the good St. Jude, Jude today, but Judas Iscariot. He's, he's, no, no. So finally, some folks began to return to his old name, Mom, M-A apostrophe A-M, but they called him Masha Mom. And um, so he is still venerated. There are um, these groups called mm-hmm. Kofradias, which are little brotherhoods and sisterhoods who get together, and they um, assemble his statue only once a year because the Catholics really don't allow it. And they bring him up to the Catholic Church and they celebrate him in the um, courtyard in front of, or the plaza in front of the Catholic Churches because he's not allowed in the Catholic Churches, but these are Catholic people. And then they they lay scarves on him and things like that, and those scarves are taken off as blessed cloths. And um, he's venerated with um, things that are penis shaped including you know these fruits of this tree that's called a sausage tree and um also with um alcohol 
and um, things that are orange, like oranges, is another one of his things. And these little um, shrines used to be very, very private. Back in the 70s, my friends in Guatemala, you couldn't get in to see that stuff unless you'd lived there for quite a while. I made friends with Guatemalans. And Oh, did we lose Kat? Oh, and they, new new ones have been set up in every Guatemalan city now. You can do a whole tour of Mashaman shrines because the Catholic Church finally kind of gave up hating on them and let them do it, and it's mm-hmm. now something that's popular. And oh, so folk religion can often come out of the shadows, and people go, where did that come from? But another mm-hmm. one is Santissima Muerte in Mexico came out of the yep. shadows fairly fairly recently. Um, yeah but has been traced back to be an, an ancient um, Aztec death goddess. and mm-hmm. um, But, you know, now she's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everywhere. Well, that's what's, what's interesting is that you find some of these figures kind of cross boundaries as well, right? So in the Middle East, there is a figure known as Al-Khidr. Al-Khidr is the green man. He's not referenced in the Quran, but there's the story of uh, a man who taught Moses wisdom. And this is interpreted as a guy named Al-Khidr. And uh, among Muslims, he's seen as this green man, this teacher of Moses. But then when you go to Jerusalem, Jews go, yeah, we know who he is. We call him Elias. Mm-hmm. Christians, mm-hmm. on the other hand, go, oh, no, no, this is St. George. It's the same figure, but given three different <laughs> names, but celebrated on the same day. So places like Armenia and Turkey will have, as well as in Lebanon and Uh, Jordan as well, will have these celebrations in which Jews, Christians, and Muslims will all celebrate the different figure with the the same figure with three different names and slightly different interpretations of who this particular figure is. And like Mashimam, there is a component to fertility as well as with agriculture. Uh, He's usually associated with bringing the rain. But there's this way in which folk religions often find ways of kind of just interacting with one another and making sense finding a common language of, oh, yeah, we know who that is. You know, okay. Al-Khidr for Muslims, Elias for Jews, St. George for Christians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a story that I think really sums up, a, a quick story that sums up kind of the attitude toward folk religion that I think folks that are enmeshed in institutional religions don't get. There's a story of a, an English writer, and when she was growing up in Indonesia, she her family had uh, an indigenous maid, and she had a daughter, and, of course, the English daughter and the indigenous daughter were friends that, you know, played in the yard, that sort of thing. Well, the, the uh, maid's daughter got the opportunity to go to a, a really good school, but the rule was that they were imposing was that she had to convert to Christianity in order to go to the school. Mm-hmm. Well, the English daughter was outraged. This is not fair. Why are, why are they forcing her to do this? This is wrong. This is, you know, why can't they just accept her for who she is? And the maid mother turned to her and said, silly girl, silly girl, more gods to protect my daughter. There's a sense that <laughs> any, any other religion, any other religious power, any other entity that's going to enter the sphere of folk religion is just going to be a better addition to make your religious life and your cultural expression rich. There's not this picking of teams that seems to happen with institutional religion. It's it's why folk religion is unapologetically syncretic and and I think exciting that way as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that brings an end to our topic. Our music has played and we are ready to move on to serving our client. So let's bring in Jeremy who's going to give us a client for whom we're going to do a reading. The Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Root Work Hour with your hosts, Catherine Ironwood and Conjure Man Ali, and this week's special guest, Doc Murphy, will be right back. 
Support for this program is provided by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and located online at luckymojo.com, and by the Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers, AIR, a directory of ethical and authentic conjure practitioners located online at readersandrootworkers.org, and by the Crystal Silence League, a free online prayer service of the Association of Independent Spiritual Churches, located online at crystalsilenceleague.org. And now it's time to go to the phone. China, are you there calling from area code 862? Yes, I'm here. Ah, fantastic. Well, China has not been on the show before, nor uh, has she had a reading, but she writes in and tells us that She's had a series of bad luck and hardships over the last two years. In the past year, she's had three car accidents and went through a brief addiction to pills that cost her her federal job. She's sober now, but she wants to know about how to proceed and moving forward. All right. Thank you, China, for trusting us with your very first reading. Thank you. About how old are you? I'm 26. 26? Uh-huh. Yes. And and um and what is your sign of the zodiac? I'm a Sagittarius. Sagittarius. All right. With that, I'm going to turn over your reading to Conjurman Ali. So he's going to give you a reading on this using tarot cards. Then Doc Murphy is going to give you a reading, and then I'll come back and give you some root work advice. So here, take it away, Conjurman Holly. Thanks, Kat. Okay. So I've pulled a few cards here, um, as well as cast a, a real quick geomancy chart, probably the fastest uh, I've done one. Uh, and the, they are in concurrence that something has actually happened uh, spiritually to you. It's getting better, but there is a deep need for cleaning and protection in your instance, the very first card that I had is the Ten of Swords. And the Ten of Swords is a card of betrayal. It's a person who has been stabbed in the back ten times and they're now laying out on the ground. It is not a good figure. It's an indication that there is an enemy uh, or more than one enemy who has it out for you and who does not think of you in, in positive terms. Now, obviously, there's also uh, sort of uh, health components to this with addiction and whatnot, and it's great that you uh, kind of uh, moved beyond uh, that and that you're, you're working towards being in a better place. But this is compounded and made worse by a sort of spiritual condition. So you are going to need to do some protection work. This is confirmed by the next card, the devil. Here we see an active enemy. This is not just somebody... Uh, who, you know, was jealous or who was envious or who didn't like you. This is a person who was actively wishing you ill. Um, the devil card can also speak to the state that you're currently in. It's a Saturnine figure. It shows Baphomet sitting on a throne with two devils that are chained there. Be mindful of particularly the issue of addiction. Uh, because the chains of the two imps, the two little devils, often is an indication that uh, there is still something that can draw you back. There is still something that can bind you and hold you and trap you and fetter you. So you need to be very mindful of the issue of addiction. If you have not gotten formal help, you need to get formal help uh, and keep regular attend meetings, 
uh, seek a therapist. The devil card is usually uh, undone by its reverse of the figure of the hierophant or the figure of the lovers, which shows a celestial or a clerical figure blessing two figures. So it's exact reversal of the sort of malediction that we see in the devil, we see in the hierophant and the lover. So seek out spiritual succor and support. Prayer is going to be very useful for you, but also make sure that it manifests as an actual social support group, some type of group work, group therapy, uh, or behavioral therapy, all of which can be very useful here. These two cards taken together indicate that you are still in a little bit of trouble. Now, you said you're 26 years old, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. Yeah, so you're heading in very soon uh, in the next couple years into your Saturn return as well, which indicates that whatever patterns that you set before are going to stick with you for the next several years. So if you relapse or if you fall into uh, further problems or you, if you allow this to continue, it'll stay with you for several years. Saturn return has a way of kind of setting in stone the patterns we take with us. So you need to break this soon. The good news is you can, that you are not destined to be stuck in this state. The final card that we have here is the star. The star card is one of liberation and freedom and power. It is a nude woman who, under the benediction or the blessing of the stars, is pouring out water, water that is both spiritual and nourishing. What this indicates to me is that you want to do the magical work by timing it with astrology. Uh, you, can, you don't need advanced astrological knowledge to do it, but make sure you take note the phases of the moon. You might note where the moon is in the zodiac. Is it in Virgo? Is it in Cancer? Where is it to do the type of work that you need to do? If you do that, if you note the sort of astrological component to the work, time it with an astrology, you will be successful here. You must start, however, with cleansing work. You must start with purifying work. The figure that appeared as the judge in your uh, geomancy reading is populous. And populous is an indication that the enemy that you're dealing with is not just one person, but more than one person. So my suggestion here is strong, strong cleansing and protection work mm -hmm. and make sure that you do some powerful uh, protection, things that will guard the home and guard the person because this is coming from multiple directions. That's what I see here. I'm going to turn this over to Doc Murphy, who's going to do your next reading. And then we're going to have Kat come in and give you some root work advice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the quick little four-card spread that I have here, past, present, issue that can uh, work against the present and future. Um, this speaks more to how to tend to your heart, it looks like. Um, and Kadra Man Ali addressed really well the external threat, but this looks like it's going to be work about um, tending to your own heart. The first heart that came up in the past uh, is the Three of Hearts. And this is a card of, uh, there's a heart kind of with a storm raging behind it, pierced with three swords. It's a card of, of heartbreak, of emotional upheaval, of plummeting. And I think it speaks to your, your struggles with addiction and your struggles with just generally not being able to emotionally hold it together. Um, the present, though, looks a little bit more hopeful. It's the Eight of Cups, and it's a picture of a, somebody walking away from um, all of these open cups and deciding that it's not worth it and is walking away and facing toward and heading toward the moon. Um, again, something 
that you thought was really important in your previous previous lifestyle, previous bad decisions, you've come to the realization that this, this isn't the way anymore. And turning toward the moon means that there is a turning toward your own mental health and your own wisdom. Um, the thing that you might bump into while on your healing journey here, um, this is the Four of Pentacles, and it's the miser. He's sitting, and he's got four coins, and he's got one in his arms, and he's got his feet on top of others, and he's just not letting go. There might be a concern that, well, I might not be able to afford to proceed. This might be a little bit too expensive. Um, don't let that get in your way. Um, there are lots of things that you can do, lots of uh, resources that you can reach out to that aren't going to be expensive or might be free. So don't let that get in the way of your present journey and your present growth. And the card I see in the future, interestingly, is the King of Wands. Um, it looks to me like there might actually be a helper, a mentor, somebody who is uh, a man, possibly a brother, possibly a friend, that may be coming along as you're working on your healing journey, as you're working on the work that you have to do to tend to your heart, that is going to be a great deal of inspirational support to you. Could be a family member, could be a minister, could be a social worker, could be somebody, but it's going to be um, a male individual who's going to definitely be a real sense of inspiration to you and be able to help you keep going on your journey. So that is apparently the spread that I have, and I'd love to hear the root work advice that Miss Cat has for you. All right. I'm going to say a couple of comments on these readings. These were really great readings, and... Um, and that was a neat four-card reading, uh, Doc Murphy. I've never read, uh, had Doc Murphy read before um, like this, so I got to learn a little bit about her. That was very good. Um, the King of Wands and uh, a mentor, someone who may be a fire sign, male. And the fire signs, for those who don't know them, would be Leo, Sagittarius, and Aries. And so this would be someone who would be able to help you who's a little more calm and also is speaking from an event in the past. The King of Wands turns to the past. So it's someone who's been through what you've gone through is how I would interpret that character. All right, so I'm going to come up with a um, a spell for you. And it's going to be a three-part spell. And it's going to involve making three three little packages. And each package will be cast away. Okay, so the three packages are going to be the package of um, enemies, the package of, um, I guess we can call it um, addiction, as would be another one, and the third package is the package of feelings of failure, things that, because you've had these accidents and um, you just don't feel right. So to make the package of enemies... I'd like you to get a, a piece of paper. It can be a small piece of paper. These do not need to be elaborate when you make them. You could use a 3-inch by 3-inch Post-it. And on that Post-it, I want you to draw four arrows. And they're going to be coming in kind of from the diagonals toward the center. Just put little arrow points on them to the center. Not all the way to the center. Just may my enemies die in fire. Okay. In that package, you're going to put hot things. You're going to put um, some red-hot chili powder or a broken piece of a chili pepper, whatever will fit. Some people will put chili pepper seeds that they get in, nine chili pepper seeds, something very hot. You're also going to put in saltpeter powder that will burn. 
you can put in a little pinch of incense, and it would be. Um, oh, I, I think I might use a damnation incense or destruction incense, something of that nature. And you're going to tur- make this, fold this up into a little packet, or just twist it into a little paper bundle with, you know, just like a. And you got like a little. That's number one. That's your packet of enemies, and it's going to be burned in fire. You're also going to do um, a little package for failure. And so this is your fear of failure, and it's we're going to turn your failure into success. So you can take another little piece of paper, and this one you're going to um, write, instead of th- drawing four arrows coming in toward you, you're going to just put a circle in the center. And in that circle... You say, um, and I have to explain this, it's hard to say, if you draw it in the circle, you can write the words, may all my failures, and then you're going to turn the paper 180 degrees, so you're now writing in the other direction, um, turn into successes. So one section goes, may all my failures, and the other one is turn into successes, upside down from each other. So into this packet, you're going to put some lemongrass, which is an herb that's used in making Chinese wash and van van oil, um, which are used to turn failures into successes. You're going to put a pinch of van van incense. And I'd also like you to put um, just a, a little pinch of sage leaves for wisdom. And you can um, twirl that up into a little package. Okay? The third package is going to be for... Um, um, addiction. And this package, you're going to put whatever it was you were addicted to. If it was pills, you're going to have one of those pills. You don't need anything else but that, although you could add two other things, one of which is nettle, um, stinging nettle herb, and um, the other one, uh, which would be not weed. And you can put those in. If you only have the pill, that's fine. On that piece of paper, which is also a three inch by three inch paper, you're going to draw the arrows from this, not from the center, but from like partially pointing outward, right? And you're mm-hmm. going to put the pill, the nettle, and um, and oh, and you can add cast off evil incense powder in there if you'd like to. Okay. So the first package you're going to burn in fire. And you're going to do that at your home. Um, this is the um, packet of your um, enemies. And you're going to just burn it um, at your home, not in the house, outside the house, and say, may all enemies be gone. You're then going to um, walk to a crossroads. And you're going to take the the addiction and cast off evil, and you're going to put it into a crossroads where cars will drive over it. Just literally leave it there. Don't look back and just say, I I cast my addictions to the four roads. Let anyone take them and, and drive them away harmlessly. Someone may want this pill for a legitimate reason. Let it go. The the other one, the, the one for um, turning your failures into successes, you're going to um, come back to your home and you're going to bury that in front of your home. So it's just a little walk down to a crossroads, which can be any um, place where two streets cross or any two roads, and um, and bury that uh, and leave that one, and then come back. So that's how you do it, and uh, you bury that one in earth. Okay, so that's a very simple three-part um, spell. 
And I hope that's of use to you. Does anyone have any um, things to add to that? Yeah, I just want to say, uh, I think when Doc Murphy, Murphy said this uh, fire sign ally or mentor, this can be the sponsor that I was talking about, or this can be the person who can help with the addiction. I do think that physical component of someone there for you is really important here to help you kind of deal with this. That devil card is deeply uh, worrisome, particularly because it mm-hmm. doesn't show up in the past, but in the present. So I do think you want to do that. So uh, lighting just a white candle and calling for uh, the mentor to come to you while putting out a bowl of althea leaves can be really, really, it's very simple. All you do is put a bowl of althea leaves, uh, a small cup of water, and a white candle, and you say, Lord, wherever my uh, ally is, my mentor is, may they come to me and manifest in my life and help me through this time. Simple prayer, mm-hmm. but it works and it will bring that ally to you. Good. That's very good. Pray for your ally to come, um, your mentor, your sponsor. That's very nice. You could also bathe with althea leaf or root in water and just wash that. You make a tea of it and uh, bathe with that. And um, it's also said that if you put althea leaf or althea root in your shoe, you will be led to walk toward the person or the treasure or whatever it is um, you desire. So put it in your shoe. Okay. How about you, Doc Murphy? Do you have anything to add? I actually don't. I <laughs> I am I'm stunned at how remarkably effective um and exciting that, that bit of root work is. I think also with regard to um praying for the mentor to come along, I think this would also be a really good opportunity to, to sit and to uh, send a letter to the winds in a, in a sense, to write down, you know, dear future mentor and, and asking again in, in the form of a, a letter uh, what help mm-hmm. you need, um, who you need, and then and taking that letter, burning it, and then casting the ashes into the air and praying for whoever gets that that prayer that uh, your future mentor mm-hmm. will hear it and will come to you. And act, mm-hmm. I think that would be a wonderful addendum to that. Yeah, that's a good one, casting it to the winds. Sometimes called in, in African-American folklore, that is called writing a letter and mailing it in the air. And, yes. Um, so it's, but um, it's also called casting a spell to the winds. Um, in Jamaica, it's very often done by burning that uh, paper to ash, p- holding it in your hand, and going to a crossroads and blowing in the four directions. And that's called blowing your prayer to the winds. All right. Well, thank you very much, China, for um, trusting us to help you with what we could. And um, check back in again with us in about six months, and let's see where you're going. You have your Saturn return coming up, so there's some some difficult um, transitions and journeys to make during this time, and we're here to help you. All right, now we're going to turn this over to our um, electronically generated, partially human sound effect (laughs) board. The LMC Radio Network is a media alliance whose excellent shows include The Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Rootwork Hour with Catherine Ironwood and Conjurman Ollie, Sundays, 3 to 4.30. The Crystal Silence League Hour with John St. Germain, Tuesdays, 5 to 6. The Witch, the Priestess, and the Cauldron with Elvira Love and Phoenix Lefay. 
Fridays 1 to 2, and Blue Flag Root Radio with Lady Muse Fridays 7 to 8. All time specific, add three hours for Eastern, sponsored by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and online at luckymojo.com. And now it's time for our free spell segment from Doc Murphy from the Twin Cities of Minnesota in Paganistan. Take it away, Doc Murphy. Thank you, Dr. Jeremy. Well, this is a spell that will help to heal and free your heart after a really painful breakup. If you're the kind of person or you've had issues in the past with after a really painful breakup, jumping too soon into a new relationship before your heart is fully healed, before you're emotionally ready, this is a spell that will help you, um, well, do better with regard to that and to take care of yourself before you leap into a new relationship too quickly. Um, In the spirit of folk tradition and magic of place, uh, this spell is going to use snow. I live in Minnesota. We get tons of it. And we actually save it and keep it in the freezer so we have snow water for magic during the summer months. So what you want to do on a winter day is go out and get a big bunch of snow in a bowl and let it melt. You'll also need a white taper candle dressed with healing oil, crushed violet leaves, marjoram, bitney of crete, and rue. And you'll also need a small strand of your own hair. Well, what you'll want to do to start the spell is first you'll light the candle, pray in your way for the healing of the heart, and pray according to the way that your tradition dictates. Let yourself have a good cry. As the candle melts, pick up some of the warm wax that forms, that that drips off the side, and shape it into a tiny little heart, no bigger than a dime. Little bitty heart. As you're doing so, make sure you put that one little hair of yours into the wax. If you're still crying while you're doing this, let a tear or two drop into the wax as well. Allow the candle to burn all the way down, letting your little wax heart cool. Once it hardens, scribe your name into it with a pin, and make sure you bury the remaining candle detritus in your yard. If you got snow, bury it under the snow. Put the heart into a section of an ice cube tray. Fill that with the melted snow water. Place that into the freezer with a prayer for healing. You are kind of, in a sense, freezing yourself out of making bad love decisions while you're healing. So if folks say, come on, let's go to the club and meet people, you can go, it's not time, I'm not ready, I need to work. Or I want to set you up on my cousin Stanley. No, I need this time, I need this time. And then when it is time, and you will know when that is, dress a red taper candle with healing oil and the same herbs as we listed before, and again, scribe your name into it, then light it with a prayer for love to come. Now take that ice cube you put your heart in out of the freezer, put it into your receptive hand, your non-dominant hand, and squeeze. And it'll be cold, and it'll be messy, and it'll be uncomfortable, kind of like emotional healing is, and it may even hurt. And you may cry again if it pushes you to do that. That's fine. Don't set it down. Don't switch hands. Hang on. Trust the catharsis. And soon you'll feel the ice up in your hand, and there's your precious heart, healed, pure, and ready for new love. And you can use that as the personal concern for your new love working, whether it's a mojo or a charm or whatever you like. And you can use that as a personal concern to draw new love to you. Wow. <laughs> Wow. I really I'm, love that. I, 
That's cool. And I'm going to say, you know, what came to me when you were saying how would he use it, if you would to then, and, and I'm going to ask you, is this legit, if you were to then burn a love attraction candle, like a look-me-over candle, you could put that heart in the wax of that glass candle, right? And it would melt oh, into yeah. that candle. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you, I'm liking you that. Ooh, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, though, like I said, the main thing is we're trying to free it from its encasement of, of, of being frozen, of being emotionally frozen. So you're going to feel yeah. a little vulnerable when you have this little heart in your hand. But then you've got, you know, perfect, perfect personal concern for any kind of love attraction spell at that point. That's going to be really You could also, yeah, you could also put it in a, a little mojo bag, depending on the kind mm. of wax. It might melt a little. It might stay solid. depends on the wax you used. Um, wow. What a wonderful idea! You could also yeah, um, you could also use it, um, you know, to make a any kind of a packet that would not be a necessarily a mojo, but a packet that might be buried, for instance, in a potted plant. So you might have a potted plant at your door. Bury the heart in a paper that you wrote your wish that love will come to your door, be attracted to you, and um, and that becomes a container spell. I, I would. Yeah, I have could, never considered using ice. I've never considered using ice or freezing in this way. So this is a really cool spell. I'm like, oh wow, interesting. Because for me, I'm always well, freezer freezer work in a completely different direction. But I love this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, come it, here in Minnesota. Snow and ice is a gift. You know, it's it's pure yeah. white, wonderful, pure water that comes from the heavens. And like I said, we we get tons of it, so we might as well use it. <laughs> Yeah, that's lovely. Well, and you know, this is a a very interesting freezer spell because most freezer spells are to slow things down or to stop them. And this is to slow something down or stop it. It's to slow you down getting into rebound romances that are not good for you. Mm -hmm. Just slow Mm -hmm. yourself down, take, take a little breather. And it's completely under your control. If you want to unfreeze your heart, you can do it in two days if you want to. You could wait three months. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this because I'm going to teach this spell. Um, and there's some reasons that I, I have clients who say things like, yes, I haven't had sex in eight years, and I'm thinking it's about time that I put myself back on the market. I'm like, you waited eight years? And, oh, but Lord. Gives them, <laughs> yeah, right. But this gives a person something to think about. It's a conscious decision to put that heart on ice not an unconscious oops it's eight years later and i just found it's a it it gives you emotional control over what you want your future to be i love this spell doc murphy it's brilliant absolutely brilliant well to to give credit where credit is due it was the first time i encountered it it was with a, a ritual where there were about 150 people standing in a spell kind of working this um, personal emotional healing. So if you can imagine that many people all holding that ice cube and melting it and kind of having the emotional catharsis they need and seeing that little heart show up in their hand, there are people oh that were apologizing to each other and, and making, uh, you know, people that came out of really rough times that had the support there. It was really, really quite remarkable. And so I just decided that, well, on an individual level, it's just as healing and cathartic yeah. for sure. And so you've you've turned it by by your selection of herbs, you've made it more of a love healing spell by using Dittany of Crete, for instance. Um, Absolutely. I would think that you could also use this for other forms of healing by using different herbs. And um, 
What a wonderful spell. Thank you so much. All right. Well, it's been lovely having you as our guest. Your first time on the show. I'm sure it's not going to be your last. You're you're brilliant, fun, super. We love you, Doc Murphy. <laughs> this is a very fun episode. Yay! Yeah, I would be happy great. to come back. This was a great time. I had a great time. Yes. Well, you've been always wonderful in the chat room, um, and I'm I'm glad to see you shine. All right. We're going to turn this over to Dr. Jeremy from um, speaking to us from the Chaz adjacent territories. Take it away, Dr. Jeremy. <laughs> well, thank you, Miss Cat and Condorman Ollie, and thank you, Doc Murphy of the Twin Cities in Minnesota, in Afghanistan, for being our guest this week. Next week, we invite you to join us when our special guest from the Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers will be an amazing, young, new, up-and-comer, Miss Catherine Ironwood, bringing us oh, a topic of photopsychometry. <laughs> Once again, we've come to the end of another Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Root Work Hour, brought to you by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California. You can find Miss Cat via the Lucky Mojo Forum at forum.luckymojo.com and Conjurman Ali at theconjurman.com in Mission Viejo, California. I'm your announcer, Dr. Jeremy White. The Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Root Work Hour can be heard every week live on Blog Talk Radio at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and the shows are available in the archive via luckymojo.com backslash radioshow.html. For all of us at Lucky Mojo, I'd like to thank you for being here and invite you to tune in once again next week at the same time when you will hear the familiar strains of the Memphis Jug Band playing the Jug Band Waltz. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Jeremy. But I think that black backslash is a forward slash, just saying. Um, (laughs) All right. Good Good night, night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye.